Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. Once again, I am fortunate to have not one, but two guests joining me today. My first guest is Christian Giordano. Christian is the most innovative person in the architecture field today. A visionary who is radically changing the industry through tech-first innovation, he has been highlighted as one of Building Design and Construction's 40 Under 40 in the class of 2013. Driven by a quest for learning with over 25 years' experience, Christian, the anti-architect is reimagining the building industry with a progressive approach as president and co-owner of Mancini Duffy, a national design firm with a 100-plus year history and tech-forward approach based in New York City. In 2020, Christian completely revolutionized the design process as the inventor of the patent-pending The Tool Belt, a software suite that allows users to explore and manipulate 3D models collaboratively to make decisions together. In 2021, he launched the Anti-Architect podcast to share his futurist approach to design and architecture. My second guest is Jessica Sheridan. AIA and lead AP, Jessica is an award-winning architect and principal at Mancini Duffy. With over 20 years experience, Jessica leads a design studio focused on a broad range of project types. She thrives on complex projects that are sustainable and resilient. She also prides herself on not having a specialty in the field and manages projects that range from small temporary pop-up spaces to large building retrofit and adaptive reuse. Outside of Mancini, Jessica has a long history with the American Institute of Architects, 
having held positions on the local, state, and national board of directors. The project we are going to chat about today, among other things we're probably going to chat about today, is the Tin Building, 96 South Street, New York City. Mancini was the architect of record for the Tin Building by Jean Georges, a sprawling culinary destination located in Lower Manhattan's historic seaport. Set under the shadow of the Brooklyn Bridge, the two-story building offers an unexpected array of culinary experiences designed to delight and engage the senses. This includes multiple restaurants with open kitchens, innovative retail concepts, and an impeccably stocked central market with locally sourced seafood, meats, cheeses, seasonal produce, chef-grade pantry staples, and rare ingredients. Originally built in 1907 as the center of the Fulton Fish Market, the Tin Building is a landmark structure within a landmark neighborhood. Mancini, as architect of record, facilitated the move of the building 33 feet to the east, disassembling the historic structure and reassembling it at its new location, while also elevating it six feet so it would be above the 100-year floodplain. This effort also restores historic characteristics of the building that were lost in the 1995 fire and Hurricane Sandy in 2012. More than 300 historic artifacts were salvaged, saved, and restored, and or recreated for the reassembly. The project is anticipated to earn a LEED Silver certification. Christian and Jessica, welcome to Detailed. How are you guys today? Great. Awesome. I'm thrilled to have you here. I have to admit, Christian, I'm a little bit of a fangirl of your podcast. Oh, no. I, I even, I know, I, I listened to a couple and I even considered stealing a couple of your questions and throwing them back at you. And then I decided, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> just Thank just you. to see, Thank you. See, see if you like it. Um, I like to kind of break the ice a little bit. Tell me one interesting thing about you that is not related to our industry. I think one thing interesting about me is that I'm very interested in craft beer. So you being oh. based in Portland, Oregon, I'm jealous of what you have out there to offer. So we're already best friends because I am as well, although whiskey is my current hobby. <laughs> so yeah, we'll we'll go offline and talk all about beer. Sounds good. We'll have a lot to talk about. Christian, how about you? So if it's not work, it's always seems to be something architecture related. So a few years back when my daughters were born, um, I started making cakes, baking cakes, you know, like the Cake Boss and Ace of Cakes. And it's kind of like architectural model making. And that's continued on for friends and family and making these crazy fun baking. I'm not a good baker. My wife actually has to bake the cakes. Um, and they have, there's only one recipe that seems to hold the weight. And the cakes themselves kind of are terrible, but they look nice. And so it's been fun and kind of like a good party trick. I, I can relate on the baking thing. If it's got flour in it, I have a serious problem right off the bat. But I love that. And I've noticed that a lot of architects, their hobbies are all still very creative or very artistic. Lots of musicians. Yes. We have a lot I, in our office. Did not expect that at all. And guest after guest, oh, I play the guitar or I'm a drummer. I grew up playing the flute. Oh, I tried that. I didn't do very well at that one either. <laughs> we have a full Mancini band, um, the Mancini Duffy band called Slab Retention. 
and um, they formed out of a project that they were working on because they had the part of the project was to retain slab to keep the uh, floor area ratio to get the bulk, um, not lose the bulk that was grandfathered in on a site and they became the slab retention band and they play at our, you know, our holiday parties. And the goal is to have them play at the opening of various buildings as we design them too, if we can convince the client. So let's get down to business because I could sit and be goofy all day if they'd let me get away with it. Let's talk about this building, the tin building in New York. What's the story of this building? The story of the building is pretty historic. For me personally, I grew up in the city and in in New York, and I grew up going down there. And there have been points in time where there have been impacts on this building in particular, being part of the history of the fish trade in New York and In 1995, there was a fire in the tin building, and I happened to be there that day. (laughs) And then Hurricane Sandy happened, and that was one of the reasons why the fish market moved to the Bronx and the whole building was flooded and partially destroyed. And so part of this project was to revitalize this historic building, bring it back to its original magnificence and be part of what the Howard Hughes Corporation, which is the developer of the building and and that whole downtown area in the seaport, is to revitalize that neighborhood, create a food and beverage destination, make it a place where people really want to come and spend time. So it grew into a food hall. There were some other programs that were explored early on. um, And we actually got engaged after the design was complete the design was done by shop architects, and then there was a transition from from their team to our team as we oversaw the construction of it. South Street Seaport was at, at one time a big tourist destination. You know, there's historic ships there. There was all of the, the fisheries that came in, and then it became kind of a retail area, and then it kind of became nothing for a while, and nobody went there. And it was a shame because it's really kind of out in the water. You have an amazing view of Brooklyn and the Brooklyn Bridge. And Howard Hughes, to their credit, went and essentially purchased and went on a, a uh, an entire redevelopment of that area, building new buildings, restoring old buildings, purchasing buildings further in, and also making them amenities. And now that area is extremely vibrant, um, and it's nice to see people move into that downtown area again. So I have to ask. I have to ask about this right out of the shoot because doing a little I read the description you guys sent me and and did a little trolling on the internet about this project and I was like did I just read they moved this building 33 feet and and all I can say to myself is why why would you move <laughs> a building 33 feet but I know that people don't just do that for fun so you would have a really good reason so tell tell me about exactly what that was Yeah, we had to move the building in a couple of different directions. First, we had to elevate it above the 100-year floodplain. Because it was so damaged and sandy, that was what the impetus was behind elevating it about six feet from where it was previously. When the studies were done to see what impact that would have, they realized that the canopy of the tin building would actually hit the elevated FDR highway, which was adjacent to it. So in order to avoid hitting the highway, we needed to also move the entire building over to the east 33 feet in order to miss the highway. 
I, I can't even, how though? How, how do you move a building 33 feet? I mean, you didn't just put it up on jacks and roll it over there. <laughs> so the whole building also it being a historic structure needed to be documented very carefully. There were historic members that were specifically required to be either maintained or replicated. So the whole building ended up being disassembled. Pieces of it that could be preserved were shipped somewhere where they could be preserved. Other pieces that needed to be replicated were shipped somewhere to be replicated. And the entire building was disassembled. New piles were driven into the water because it's on a pier. And then the plaza and the development of the landscaping around the building were strategic in terms of how it accommodated some of these moves without making it look obvious. And then the entire building was reassembled again. Don't, you know, don't do anything the easy way. <laughs> so just curious, you guys have a thing for taking on the really difficult projects? I think so. I don't know. Well, yeah, I, we... You know, I had Bill Mandera on a couple seasons oh, ago. That's right. And he's telling me about this building. And I'm like, I, I, I think I even asked him in the interview, why didn't you just tear it down? Yeah. <laughs> That's not really the way it always always works in New York, and that's not always the most cost effective. But yeah, there's a thing in New York that if it existed at one time, or if there, if you can go back and find it in old photographs, then it's kind of yours to keep as is, right? And so, as zoning has changed over time, there's less and less available bulk and air rights and things like that. So developers will do anything they can to keep that bulk, whether it's move it, shift it, disassemble it, you know, transfer it, you know, whatever they've got to do, because um, that's the money maker at the end of the day. The more you can fit on a little plot of land, the more money you can ultimately generate from that property. I would say also, though, that preserving buildings like that, or even if you're not preserving a building for historic purposes, just using the existing infrastructure of a building is really a sustainable approach. It already works within the urban fabric. It's embodied into the into the neighborhood. It's a, it's part of human experience already. And then to add on to that or refresh it or create something new from the old, it's it's a much more sustainable approach without starting from scratch that might feel a little out of place to begin with. I agree completely, especially if you can take what's there and make it into a, a more sustainable building than it was as well. So there had to be extra layers of challenges. You're working with somebody else's documents. Mm -hmm. You know, you pick up an instruction manual for something you've never looked at before. There's going to be a learning curve and there's going to be challenges associated with that. Tell me about construction. I think what was so great about this project that I'm very proud of is that from day one, when we went to our first meeting, the entire team was extremely welcoming of us. The contractors were at the table, the consultants were at the table, the client, everyone was extremely excited about this project, but also equally nervous because no one had ever worked on a project like this before. It became a real collaborative effort to try to figure out every step of the way, all of the unintended things that, that happened along the way. And so it was a very rewarding process for me because there was so much support and collegiality among all of the members of the team to try to figure it out just because we were all in the same boat. And it, there was no question of one person more experienced than another or you know what someone had done on another project that clearly was the obvious solution. There was never an obvious solution and there was always a discussion in order to figure it out together. 
Yeah, and I would also say something about us as a firm that we really pride ourselves on is being easy to work with. Jessica and I have worked at other firms or worked with other firms where you just come at it and it's difficult. For whatever reason, people just want to be difficult. They want to be the smartest person in the room. They want to be you know, the king of, of whatever it is. And we're not like that at all. And I think you know, a lot of times we are the design architect and we see a project from beginning to end. A lot of times we are just the designer and sometimes we're the architect of record. And for us, it doesn't really matter as long as the problem solving portion of the project is there, we'll take on whatever role is needed. And if the designer's coming in, it doesn't really matter from our point of view, if they're a designer that worked in-house with us or they're an outside firm, we always try to be collaborative and truly collaborative, not just using that, that word as a word, but really inviting them into our process and making them feel like they're part of the team and we're part of the team. It's something that I talk about all the time is just being normal, being civil to one another, being on the same team from day one. A lot of it stems from the client and the client's contacts. So we have a great client contact at Howard Hughes uh, who really runs those projects. And, you know, his demeanor, his personality kind of sets the tone for everything. And that makes a huge difference when you get into construction. And when you have issues in construction, rather than, hey, it's the architect's fault, it's the designer's fault, they stink. It's, hey, we have this issue. We need to figure out a solution for it rather than just, you know, yelling at each other or telling, you know, hey, this is going to cost so much money. It might cost money. It might not. We'll figure it out along the way. We have no choice. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a way to say it nicely, and I can't. It's such a stupid thing in our business on projects that we kind of move into these adversarial relationships when you know, sit down with everybody from day one and say, hey, we're all in this together. You know, it's like the crown jewel. Um, so, so I love that. So tell me about some of the spaces in this building. The interior is a, is a full uh, food hall. So there are different pavilions with different types of food. It's all operated by one chef, by Jean-Georges. But there is everything from a bakery space to a private dining to a show kitchen to a candy store. It's all in here. There are great bars. And it's all very highly curated and specific to the experience. And it's all tied to the seaport. So from a base building perspective, because there are so many kitchens and so many different pavilions within this one building, coordinating the infrastructure behind it was, was a real art, I would say. And modeling everything in BIM 360 so we can really see where all of the pipes are going, all of the ducts are going to tighten everything as much as possible to the ceiling and make sure everything is aligned in a way that lets the architecture of the food hall speak to what customers are experiencing. While all of that stuff recesses into the background, that is something that, that was a piece of art. And then on the exterior, developing an experience with the elevated highway, the pier tended to be separated from the rest of Manhattan. And so creating the plaza experience that connects from Fulton Street through the Tin Building and out to Pier 17, that experience, as well as what people see from the highway, was all part of the design elements that we were trying to highlight. So whether it was signage or lighting or paint colors, all of those things that are historically accurate, but yet feature and highlight the architectural details, that was something that was 
that was really important in the execution. Think of it as, you know, the most amazing culinary food experience all by Jean George, right? It does. It has every possible thing for every possible person. So if you're a foodie, this is the place to go for sure. It's like Candyland for for foodies. Yeah, that would be a good place for me. (laughs) I'm gaining weight just thinking about it. I worked in, after the recession in 08, I worked in an MEP firm for a chunk of time, and I can only imagine the coordination that had to go into this space with all these different food spaces in the electrical and the mechanical and the plumbing. Everything. And then also actually our roof is a piece of art, I would say as well, because of all of the hoods and all of the mechanical units on that roof. In addition to, there's a supplementary generator for the adjacent Pier 17 that was added into this roof as well. So we had to prove that nothing could be seen from different perspectives that were going on the roof, coordinating with access for FDNY, and then figuring out every inch of that roof is planned with there's something. And if there isn't something, it's because of a clearance that's required. But finding and organizing all of those pieces within our, started out in our Revit model, and then mocking it up on site and making sure that everything was clear. And then having multiple conversations with landmarks as well to show photographically at first, but then also there were a couple of walkthroughs with them to explain what was going on up there. So everyone felt comfortable about it. But the owner was committed to, you know, spending that tiny little extra bunny that he needed to on the roof to keep it organized, to keep it thoughtful in the way it was laid out and then screened properly. A lot of people won't do that. They won't spend that little extra time and that little extra money you know, why Why do you go through all this and then slap a bunch of things on the roof and they're just, you know, eyesores? How much of the original building were you able to reuse and, and how much did you have to build new and, and what materials did you use? You know, because you're, you're melding old and new. What did you do there? Yeah, so there were a number of cast iron columns that we reused there were a number of the original building materials that we used but then many of them had been damaged so it's sort of a collage of old and new and in some aspects of it so finding materials that match or that work with those historic structures are are really that was really a challenge for us so for example the facade we ended up using painted aluminum instead of galvanized steel, which was what had been done after the fire in 95. But the paints and the coatings were really the tricky part. <laughs> so, um, you know, around our cast iron columns, we we used a specific tonemic paint. We did numerous mock-ups of it. Sometimes it was too gloopy. Sometimes it was too thin. Sometimes the color didn't match the other green that was on the green of the you know window frames, things like that. There were constant revisions of things, but then also acknowledging the location of this being right on the southern tip of Manhattan. And so anticipating future events like Hurricane Sandy, how do you how do you find the highest performance coatings that aren't going to be corrosive to the materials beneath them, but then also how are they going to withstand future rain and wind events in the future? So all of those things were extremely important. It's a whole different ballgame when you're putting a building next to water. Yeah, or basically above water, yeah. 
Yeah, I just finished making a bunch of changes to our master specs, strictly due to some requirements around products being used in marine environments, Hmm. because products don't hold up the same. So you not only have to meld old and new, but you have to look at things like being in the environment this building is and hurricanes and hopefully no more fires. So what was what what would you say the, the most challenging part of this project has been? One thing was the fact that we had three different base conditions going on here. The building itself is on a pier. It's right adjacent to Manhattan, which is not moving. <laughs> there is to the south a different pier that is moving differently from the pier that the tin building is on. And to the south of, of the tin building, there is another pier. And so at any point in time, these piers can move six inches in either direction. And how do you create a threshold or a transition that works <laughs> in all of those ways? And at one point, we used custom slip knots along those thresholds for the most part. We had an MCL product that came along the south side of the tin building, which involved going up a ramp and up some stairs <laughs> in order to keep the separation strategic. But it definitely was a bit of trial and error, and it was a bulky product that was really difficult to tie into a very clean, nice design. I think one of the challenges too is when you take a iconic historic building and you you know take it apart and reassemble it and restore it back to what it originally was intended to be not what kind of it became over the years you always worry about what the feedback is going to be you know what the what the community is going to say but at the end of the day the community really loved this it's really been well well received and i think they they got it they understood that everybody made the effort to preserve it but to make it new again right and that it was restored back to what it originally was supposed to be you see a lot of times buildings that have been restored, but if you restore them back to their original, people don't really get that that's what it was intended to be. They remember it in sort of its current state. So I think everyone appreciates the historic nature of this at the end of the day. So what would you say your biggest lesson learned came from this particular project? This may be a small thing, not a big thing, but something simple as door thresholds are really tricky when tolerances are tight and movement happens in two different directions. So <laughs> so for us, I think moving forward, understanding early on those different tolerances and it's those finishing touches that make everything because once things are bulky or once you have to add something or laminate something onto something else, it, it ruins your whole experience. So that's a small but an important one that I am taking away from this one. How about you, Christian? For this one, it goes back to that team, right? How important it is to get everybody on the same page early on and set expectations for everybody. That is always the goal going into every project. Um, It doesn't necessarily happen. If we could really recreate this type of environment and this type of team for every project that we do, um, it would be significantly smoother along the way. We would solve all those little problems that we have along the way and find, you know, and, and come to better solutions. I think there are 
there are methods out there like IPD and, and other ways of working that encourage this kind of behavior. And I think for, for me, it's something that we're really trying to actively engage our clients with. Hey, have you thought about other methods of working? Have you thought about maybe doing design build versus, versus just traditional? We do all the documentation and then you bid it out, you find the lowest cost guy, and then the war begins, right? right? So. I think if we can replicate this kind of team atmosphere, things would be uh, smooth sailing. So there's always in every industry places that you can improve. And there's things we all see every day. I know I have things every day that, why are we doing this? It drives me insane. Where do you feel in our industry we repeatedly fail? My favorite question, what drives you crazy at work? I think where we repeatedly fail is very much what we've already talked about. It's this idea that we come in a lot of times as the architect and we know it all from the beginning and we want to prove to everybody that we are smarter, better, faster than everybody in the room. But at the end of the day, we need everybody to be part of a project and everybody to pull their weight. And if you start that project out basically telling everyone that you're the best and that you are the, you know, I'm the designer and I'm going to lead this here, and, and maybe you are, I, I don't know, it doesn't set the team usually off in the right foot. There are wonderful superstar architects and designers that can do that kind of thing, that command the room. I've worked with many of them or, or for a few of them, some of the biggest architects in the world, and they actually were not like that. They didn't come in super ego-driven. They were very grateful. And so I think where we really fail is not really allowing those that work at our firms to kind of move up in the profession to really, you know, take charge of whether that's a design or the technical side of things. The sooner we can get more and more people within our firm in front of clients, in front of contractors and leading teams, the better they're going to be. And we have to know that they may fail along the way, they may learn by trial and error, but we also pretend that's that's not how we learned, right? That we knew it all from the beginning. So, you know, I come at it from a very different perspective. I come at it with thinking, I really don't know what I'm doing. And I tell people all the time, you know, I've, I've never owned an architecture firm before. This is my first one. I've owned it for 10 years now. Um, and I'm learning every single day on the job. I make mistakes constantly. I've made mistakes where you know, I think I I probably should have treated people differently. Not not like I was bad to them, but I probably should have listened to really kind of what they were asking for rather than having my own agenda. Or I should have promoted someone before and and they left, right? Or maybe the opposite. Maybe I kind of let someone that we knew wasn't pulling their weight just kind of continue down a path and we didn't deal with it, right? And then that didn't look great um, from the others around us. So I think it really is a constant learning in our profession, from the project point of view, from running the company point of view. And, you know, I, I think if we're open and honest and a little vulnerable about kind of who we are and what we're doing, I think it makes for a better firm and then ultimately a better projects and better relationships with our clients. I absolutely love that answer. And you are the first architect ever that was brave enough to address the, at least the perception of architecture ego. 
Um, and, and it's not just a perception. In some places, it's very real. I know so many amazing architects who are very humble and very grateful. And I know other ones that I kind of like, just like to kick in the shins and <laughs> say, get off your high horse and let's get down to business. Right. And, and you're right. We never stop learning. We all make mistakes every day. I tell my class that I teach all the time that the minute you think you're an expert at anything in this business or you got it all figured out, please get out of the profession. <laughs> Love that answer. How about you, Jessica? <laughs> well, I think I'm going to add a little bit to, to Christian's answer here. But um, one of my favorite quotes right now is from is from the show Schitt's Creek, Moira Rose, who is the matriarch, what she said in it, and I wrote it down and I, I love it, is worry is undernourished enthusiasm. So <laughs> so I feel like we as like architects need to, need to be better at nourishing the enthusiasm that's behind all of the creativity of, of, and the reasons that we're in this field to begin with. I, I love that because you're right. There is a lot of stress and a lot of worry in our industry um, that are opportunities, I think real opportunities if somebody's paying attention for empowerment, especially because we have a huge generational shift happening right now. Yeah. So um, this is, this is my favorite question. I'm not going to throw Christians, one of Christians final questions at him. What is your world domination statement? And what I mean by that is personally or professionally, what mark do you hope to leave on the world? So What's interesting about this question is, I think for me it's changed over time. Um, as I, you know, get older, I'm, I'm getting, I'm approaching fifty years old, so um, I'm, you know, kind of looking at the downhill slope, you know, kind of trying to figure things out. And I think if you would have asked me at twenty, it would have been very different. And then asking me, even ten years ago where I wanted to be. You know, a lot of the professional side of things, I think we, we've accomplished a lot of them. We wanted a great culture. We wanted a place where people did have that mentorship. Um, we wanted to, you know, have a real diversity of projects and learning experiences and all that sort of stuff. I think my next phase is kind of what is the purpose of our business? Why do we exist? Why does Mancini Duffy exist? Why is good design important? And I can answer those questions on a piece of paper, but really emotionally, why are they important? And what are we doing to help people? And what can we do in the design profession, not only helping people in terms of businesses and, and their business goals, which is important because making money is important because that is ultimately what you know, makes the world go round. Um, but what what can we do to ultimately give back as well? And so that's kind of the next phase for me in our company. And as we continue to grow, I think we'll have a little bit more leeway to take on those kind of projects to try and give back in those arenas. And and that's kind of what the I think the next ten years uh, I'd like to personally focus on. Jessica, I think it is a question of leaving either the neighborhood or a building or a client after a project is done in better condition than where it started. So I'm very passionate about sustainability. I'm very passionate about climate action and resiliency. And I'm also a very strong advocate for our clients. I, I want our projects to suit what their needs are. And I want them to feel that their life is easier because of it. And life, maybe not life, maybe it's an experience, maybe it's um, a temporary thing, but it's 
part of, in New York at least, the city that we inhabit on a day-to-day basis. And buildings have um, have an impact that can either be ostracizing or it can be welcoming. And I really want everything that I work on to have that positive impact on on a community. And I want people to feel a connection to place and to the buildings that they are interacting with. That's amazing because I, I I say this all the time, whether you realize it or not, your space is affecting you, your mood, emotionally. I have had buildings move me to tears that I have been to that they they touched me in some way. So I think that's awesome that that you have that at the forefront of your brain. Okay, I can't end this podcast, Christian, without giving you an opportunity to tell everybody about your podcast, which is how I originally spotted you. I'm like anti-architect. What the heck does that mean? (laughs) So take a second to plug your podcast and tell us what it's all about. Yeah, sure. So the podcast is called The Anti-Architect. It's not because I'm anti-architects or (laughs) anti-architecture. It's funny, I get some negative uh, comments on that. How dare I say something like that? I was like, really? It's just a catchy title. Come on. Um, But no, at, at the end of the day, it really is supposed to be a critical look at the profession. And I'm trying to bring on guests that have a little bit of a different opinion on kind of how we all work together. And then opinions about architects, what we do well, what we don't do well, maybe Maybe it's shared experiences. Uh, maybe it is a criticism. Maybe it's projects that have gone really well and versus projects that have gone really bad and why. When I interview like a project manager, I try to ask them, you know, where do you see an architect fall on, our, on their face when they're giving a presentation? How do clients make those decisions of how they're going to, why they're going with one architect versus another? And so it's really meant to be a really just stripped down, just talk about what is it that we do well and, and where can we improve? And, and at the end of the day, that's, that's really what I'm, I'm focused on. And did you want to tell us anything about the tool belt? So we developed a, a piece of technology. It is basically a, a seamless process where it's now patent pending called the tool belt. When an architect or designer is working in the program Revit or Rhino, it is a rendering engine that is essentially creating simultaneously to that work a VR experience, or it doesn't necessarily have to be virtual reality. It could be just a, a, a Zoom meeting kind of, or a, a third person view into the Revit model. So you can have a full on design coordination meeting, whatever you want in the Revit model simultaneously to when you're constructing it. And it's backwards and forwards compatible within the VR. You can then interact with your Revit model. You can pick the chairs up, the tables up, move it around, change materials. If it's an exterior, you can swap out windows. So what I always say is we can do what a normal architect does in three weeks, we can do in three hours. And that's because we are constantly iterating and we've invited the client into the project, literally into the model. And instead of saying to that client, well, that's a great idea, we'll think about it and we'll work on six different options for you over the next two weeks, we can say, well, let's try it. And we move those tables or chairs or we move that window or we raise the curtain wall, whatever that might be. And the client gets a first person perspective of what that might look like. And, you know, do we get sign off right then and there? No, but we get, you know, a general direction. We get the, yeah, I think that might work. Let's explore that. Then we can spend the next two weeks designing it. Uh, maybe doing a couple of variations on it, but we're not just spinning our wheels and doing six different versions to throw five of them out at the end of the day. And I think the clients really like that interactivity that is provided. 
So it's something that it's a piece of software. We're trying to figure out, do we uh, sell it? You know, as its own package, um, or do we, you know, kind of create a spinoff company of it, whatever it is, and and that's kind of what we're working on. Um, that's our goal for twenty three. So my takeaway today from Mancini Duffy in two interviews now: you want collaboration, talk to Mancini Duffy. You want innovation, because you just lost me on half of that description, just because I'm not a tech person, but I got. I got what you're talking about, not how it all works in the model, but I, you want innovation? Talk to Mancini Duffy. If you want somebody who's not afraid of the hard, hardest project you got, call Mancini Duffy. These have been great <laughs> interviews, and it was great, Jessica and Christian, it was great talking to you, both of you today, um, and I can't wait to share this with our listeners. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, Visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.